Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. I hope you're in the mood for some mystery, because tonight we are going to explore three different famous yet enigmatic events that happened in the U.S. and Canada. We're going to try to distinguish fact from fiction, even though many of the details of these stories have never been proven and require some speculation. First, we'll visit Salem, Massachusetts, and I'll tell you all about the infamous Salem Witch Trials. Then we'll travel to North Carolina's Piney Coast to parse the mystery of the Roanoke Colony, also known as the Lost Colony, that vanished without a trace. And finally, we will look north, far north, to the icy waters of Canada's eastern seaboard and follow the tracks of the Lost Franklin Expedition aboard two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. As usual, you don't need to watch this video to understand our stories or to follow along. You can close your eyes if you wish at any time and just focus on the sound of my voice. Are you already in your pajamas? Are you tired from a long day? So, now it's time to get comfortable and to begin our newest adventure. Our first story tonight takes us to Salem, Massachusetts, at the end of the 17th century. What follows is the most famous witch hunt in American history, and maybe even in the world. In February 1692, in Salem Village, which is now a town called Danvers, near the city of Salem, two young girls started to have extreme fits, screaming, throwing things, contorting their bodies, and making strange noises. This was, according to one witness at least, a local minister, while another described their behavior as, and I quote, beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. The girls complained that it felt like they were being stuck with pins or being pinched, but a doctor who examined them found no evidence of injury. After a few days, more young women in the village started to exhibit the same symptoms and behaviors. In the absence of an explanation, the affected families quickly concluded that there must be supernatural causes, probably witchcraft, leading to some sort of demonic possession of the girls. Three women, all of whom happened to be outcasts in this small society, were accused. One was an enslaved woman, another a homeless beggar, and the third famous for rarely attending church meetings. Rumors began to spread that the enslaved woman, Tichuba, who came from South America, attracted and entertained young girls with stories of enchantment or with fortune-telling, even sharing tales of sexual encounters with demons. The three women were arrested, interrogated by local magistrates, and sent to jail. But the fits did not stop and in March 1692, more women from Salem Village and the town of Salem, where the actual city of Salem is located today, were charged. There were a lot of feuding families in Salem Village, and this likely played a role as well. These new women being accused were not outcasts like the first group. They were well-integrated, respected members of the church and the community, 
and this troubled their fellow townspeople. Because if these apparently upstanding women could be witches, then anyone could be at risk. More arrests, prompted by accusations from young children, followed in April, and at this point even just objecting to the arrests could be enough to face prosecution as well. Some people confessed during their interrogations and named their accomplices. Many declared that they had been influenced by others in their spectral form, which we'll talk more about later, and the arrest warrants continued to multiply. In June, four months after the first girls had their fits, tons of people had been incriminated, and a special court was convened in Salem. This was just the beginning of the mass hysteria that took on even bigger proportions in the following months in what came to be known as the Salem Witch Trials. But before we go on with our story, let's take a look at who these people were and the society in which they lived, because this is crucial to understanding their story. In order to better grasp the climate in which this was allowed to happen, we need to return to 17th century New England when European, mainly British, colonists left England and settled on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. A large part of New England colonists in the 17th century were Puritans. And who were the Puritans? They belonged to a religious minority in England, and thousands of them immigrated to America for political and for religious reasons. Protestantism had reached its peak in the 16th century, and for the better part of the 16th and 17th centuries there were religious tensions in England, like in most European countries. The Church of England had separated from Roman Catholicism, and while Anglicanism is considered to be a branch of Protestantism, it was not adopted by the entire English population. Many English and Scots remained Catholics, and after the emergence of Protestantism, inspired by Luther, various sensibilities, different sets of beliefs, diverged within the Protestant world and particularly within Calvinism. And this meant that all Protestants did not see eye to eye. The Puritans were Calvinists, and their beliefs did not align with mainstream Protestantism in England. The Church of England had become the official religion of the kingdom, but it was attacked and criticized on two fronts. On one hand, there were the Catholics, who remained loyal to Rome, and on the other, Reformed Christians like the Puritans, who felt that the Church had not yet gone far enough, had not achieved its full Reformation. It is true that Anglicanism, in various aspects, is not that far from Roman Catholicism. It does reject the authority of the Pope and numerous points of doctrine, it is Protestant, but it also maintains many similarities to Catholicism, from the hierarchy, to the rituals, to the celebration of holidays. An Anglican ceremony looks a lot like a Catholic one, and Anglicanism continues to embrace Catholicism's enthusiasm for ornate architecture, for spectacular ceremonies, and for centralization within the Church. So, the Puritans were a rather radical minority that wanted to go even further in the Reformation of the Church of England, and because of their doctrine and lifestyle, they wanted to give a greater role, more power and more influence, to religion and politics. And this clashed with secular power in England. The separation from Rome was due to religious differences, but not only that. It also had political motives, 
allowing King Henry VIII, who initiated the separation, to assert his authority and his independence from external influences. The Puritan lobby had a role in English politics, but it never became mainstream in society, and was viewed and treated with a great deal of suspicion by successive rulers. As a result, thousands of Puritans left England. Some went to regions more welcoming to Calvinism, like the Netherlands, and many also emigrated to America, mainly to New England. They arrived in New England with the ambition to settle and build a new Bible-based society away from any religious conflicts in Europe. The perception was that this was a new start and that they had a chance to establish a pure and virtuous society, which was extremely important to them. And so was the perception that they were the minority, threatened on all sides by foes, both real and imagined. There was always the faraway but persistent threat of European kingdoms. Their colonies, after all, still depended on England through the charters granted by the king. There were also other European powers in North America, such as the Spanish in the South or the French in Canada. There was also the much closer threat of Native Americans, who lived near Puritan settlements and who regularly raided what they considered to be their land where these Puritan intruders had settled. And from within, there were the spiritual threats, spiritual malaise. Like other Christians in the 17th century, the Puritans believed that supernatural powers lurked everywhere. Demons could possess people who let them in. The devil was always close, and the existence of witchcraft was seen as a reality, as a fact. These communities were also relatively small and very isolated. Life was hard. The Puritan lifestyle was very severe, very strict and austere. There was almost no entertainment allowed, and very little luxury. Any pleasure that served no functional purpose was seen as a dangerous temptation and was frowned upon. Colonists were supposed to live perfectly virtuous lives of work, discipline, and self-control, in the hope that they were predestined to be saved. It was also a society where religion was central and held to be above any secular authority. So, together with their faith, these settlers brought from Europe their belief in the supernatural and, in particular, in the practice of witchcraft. For centuries, witch hunts and trials existed in medieval Europe, where religious authorities questioned and sometimes condemned individuals, mainly women, for their practice of magic and their supposed dealings with the devil. But these trials were relatively rare, very uncommon in fact, and were marginalized. At the end of the Middle Ages, from the end of the 15th century until the mid-17th century, witchcraft became a much bigger preoccupation. This was a period of about 150 years, when an epidemic of witch-hunting spread in Europe. And it was not limited to witchcraft. There was a general concern about the supernatural and the influence of demons. But by the middle of the 17th century, the practice of witch trials was waning in most of Europe. It lasted a bit longer in Eastern Europe and in the New World, as European settlers had brought this practice along with them. For example, in 1647, a woman was convicted and executed for witchcraft in Hartford, Connecticut. There were other flashes of witchcraft panic in New England during the 17th century, but on a much smaller scale than what later happened in Salem. However, every community in New England knew about witchcraft, 
and could quickly turn to it as an explanation when something weird or unexplainable happened. Of course, perceived threats from outsiders, especially from the Native Americans, could have contributed to a sense of paranoia within these communities. In the years prior to the Salem Witch Trials, the coast of Maine, north of Massachusetts, was raided intensely by Native tribes, and there was a flow of refugees from abandoned settlements who moved south to communities like Salem. So this was the general background in New England at the time. And on top of this, as I mentioned before, the Salem Village community was plagued by internal disputes between families. There were unresolved arguments about property lines, for example, and there were feuds between individuals, meaning that the situation had the potential to turn explosive due to all the built-up resentments. And finally, we must consider gender in the context of puritanical society. We're going to see that the majority of people accused and convicted of witchcraft were women, almost 80% in the case of the Salem witch hunt. The prevalent belief in New England at that time was that women and men were equals in the eyes of God, but women were more easily swayed by the devil because women were inherently more sinful and weaker than men, their souls could be more easily corrupted. As a matter of fact, many women accused of witchcraft did confess, admitting that they had been possessed. Maybe they believed it. After all, they had been taught their entire lives that they, as women, were at risk. Confessing was also often the best way to save themselves. Those who confessed were welcomed back into society, whereas denial and refusing to plead guilty in a witch trial was very dangerous and potentially deadly. If their claims of innocence were not believed, they could be executed. So, the belief in witchcraft made these accusations and trials into a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. The trials often led to confessions, which could then perpetuate the belief in evil possession. In the years prior to 1692, there had been rumors of witchcraft in the villages neighboring Salem Town. The climate of isolation, the perception of internal and external threats, the aspiration to a pure and homogeneous society, belief in the supernatural, and on top of this resentments and quarrels between members of the community, all combined to create a favorable breeding ground for paranoia. With all of that in mind, let's return to our story. In June 1692, Four months after the first girls began to have their fits, trials began for the dozens of people who had been indicted following the propagation of possession symptoms and denunciations in the community. The first woman accused was sentenced to death by the court for witchcraft. The conviction was based on her perceived immoral lifestyle. She wore odd clothes and she did not follow the Puritan way of life. The court admitted as evidence so-called spectral evidence, and three visions were accepted as fact in that first trial. Spectral evidence was a sort of testimony in which the accuser claimed to have been visited in a dream or vision by the spirit or specter of the accused. This means that witnesses who also happened to be the accusers most of the time, could testify against anyone without providing any actual material evidence save their testimony. In practice, accepting spectral evidence as material evidence defied common sense because it could send anyone to a conviction just on the basis of someone's statement. These so-called visions, these visitations were enough in these trials to convict several people. 
People learned to stop speaking out against these practices for fear of being indicted themselves. In July, the first people to be arrested were judged and sentenced to death by hanging. These first executions threw other people waiting for their trials into a full panic, and they fabricated even more accusations against others in order to save their own lives. From this moment on, a trial acquired its own internal logic. More prosecutions led to ever more confessions, with all these people confessing to demonic possession. The accused appeared increasingly credible, and executions multiplied. People who refused to enter a plea and to declare themselves guilty, in other words, people who continued to insist on their innocence after being accused by several people, were at risk of being tortured. One man was tortured by pressing his body under an increasingly heavy load of rocks in an attempt to make him plead guilty. He refused to confess and was crushed to death. Apart from spectral evidence, other forms of evidence accepted by the courts included the discovery of incriminating items at the accused homes, like horoscopes or ointments. There were also the testimonies of confessed witches who identified others as witches. This meant that a person could quickly face multiple accusations from different individuals, all which were received as legitimate evidence. The executions reached their peak in September 1692, eight months after the beginning of the fits. Eight people were executed in September, for a total of twenty deaths in eight months, including fourteen women and six men. At this point, two hundred people had been accused, and five more died in jail, awaiting their trials. After September, the first court was closed and replaced with a superior court, also in Salem Town. The court found the majority of people to be not guilty and spared the lives of those who were found guilty, progressively putting an end to this cycle of trials and executions. Bit by bit, life in Salem Town returned to normal in the years that followed. But the trials will never be forgotten, and the families affected by death sentences started a long fight for recognition of the condemned's innocence. In the twenty years immediately following the trials and executions, most people in New England acknowledged that the phenomenon of collective hysteria, although the term did not yet exist, had affected Salem and been the direct cause of the witch trials. But what could have brought about such a phenomenon? In the intervening years, various theories have been put forth to try and explain the fits that started the whole event, because those girls really did have episodes of extremely odd behavior. Enormous stress, especially for children, and a physical reaction to the psychological hysteria, or even a stress response to violent native attacks, like PTSD, are one possible explanation. This could also be the cause of the spectral visions that people claim to have experienced. Another, more biological explanation could be ergotism, which is when humans consume rye and other grains infected with the fungus ergot. Consuming grains affected with ergot could have produced similar symptoms and episodes of collective madness when people in a community ate the same foods. Another theory points to a form of encephalitis and sleep paralysis transmitted by birds. But none of these potential biological causes fully explains a whole community going mad, because many people exposed to the same environment did not experience the same symptoms, not only during the trials, but before and after. People acting out of jealousy or spite, the need for attention or for excitement. There are so many other possible motivations for these fits and their proliferation. Maybe children and others lied 
and faked their symptoms, and then, once others started taking them seriously, didn't know how to tell the truth for fear of the consequences. In any case, and beyond individual responsibility, the Salem trials have been regarded in the United States as a cautionary tale for the whole of society. One about the dangers of isolation in small communities, of religious extremism, of false accusations and lapses in due process. It is also because of the Salem witch trials that the term witch hunt is now so commonly used in American English to describe a mob attacking an individual with false accusations. Overall, I think it's probably a good idea to keep the memory of Salem alive as a form of protection against the scapegoating of outcasts and minorities, as a reminder of the need for evidence-based justice, and maybe even more importantly, as a testament to the need to maintain a healthy distance from the inclinations of the masses, and to use critical thinking to avoid the mob mentality that is so easy to fall prey to, especially in times of social or economic unrest. Our second story of the night also happened in colonial America, but farther south, in North Carolina, and deeper in the past. A century before the events of Salem, the first attempt at establishing a settlement in North America failed, and the colonists living there all mysteriously disappeared. This is the story of the lost colony, or at least what we know of it. Our story begins in the 1580s. By the end of the 16th century, the Americas had already been explored by European navigators and by scouts for nearly a century. But for the most part, North America remained an unknown continent to them. The Spanish and the Portuguese had been the first to create settlements in the Americas, but they had focused their attention mainly on South and Central America and on the Caribbean. A few decades later, other nations such as the Netherlands, France, and England arrived on the colonial scene. They saw the advantages and wealth that Spain and Portugal had gained from establishing colonies, from creating trade routes, and from sometimes also looting these newly discovered regions of the world, and they wanted a piece of the action. Spain had a small presence in Florida, while the French were more interested in the northern parts of what is modern-day Canada, and England established itself in what is today the east coast of the United States. In the second half of the 16th century, England enjoyed a long period of respite from internal and religious strife under Queen Elizabeth I, and this is when the first attempts at creating permanent settlements began. The first charter was granted by the Queen in 1584 for the creation of a colony in North America that would also serve as a military base for privateers who would be able to intercept and raid the Spanish treasure fleets, bringing back riches from the Americas to Spain. After reconnaissance, five ships were sent in 1585 to Roanoke Island in present-day North Carolina. The expedition had a long and a difficult journey to their new home. The five ships were separated by a storm and sailed separately to a meeting point in the Caribbean before finally reaching the wooded coast of North Carolina. The 100 colonists were soon in conflict with the natives from a nearby village. This wasn't even the first time, as the advance party had also had an incident with the natives before the would-be colonists arrived. Things quickly worsened. We don't know the exact circumstances, but we do know that the conflict resulted in the destruction of the natives' village by the colonists and a subsequent attack by the natives on the colonists' fort. The native attack was repelled, but soon after all this fighting, an English expedition returning from the Caribbean stopped at Roanoke Island, 
and offered to take the colonists back to England. After all, the colonists still hadn't received any supplies, and their situation had become very precarious, with the now openly hostile natives so close to their settlement. Several of them accepted the ride home, and the colony decreased in size to the extent that, when the relief fleet finally did arrive later in 1586, had found the colony nearly abandoned. The relief fleet decided not to disembark, and to instead just leave behind a small detachment of fifteen men to maintain a presence. Another expedition, hoping to establish another colony in the Chesapeake Bay, arrived in the following year, in 1587. Intending to pick up the small group left at Roanoke Island the previous year, and to continue their journey to their final destination, they instead found nothing and no one upon their arrival. Only a single, unidentified skeleton remained. The group, naturally, made the decision to re-establish the colony here, instead of in the Chesapeake Bay. This time, 115 colonists were left behind, even though nobody knew what had happened to the 15 men who had stayed the year before. This group of 115 settlers was not sufficient either. They would need fresh supplies and more people to create a self-sustaining colony. So a plan was made to return the following year, but circumstances intervened as they often do, and due to the ongoing war with Spain, no ship could be found to resupply the colony the following year, nor the next. The colony was not forgotten, but for three years no one in England knew the fate of the ninety men, seventeen women, and eleven children who had been left behind. Then finally, after three years with no contact, an expedition reached the Roanoke colony in 1590. They found the settlement deserted. There was no sign of a battle or a deliberate departure. The colonists' homes were all intact, meaning that they had been forced to flee in a hurry. The only clues left behind were the letters C-R-O carved into a tree and the word Croatoan carved into a post at the fort. The expedition reached the conclusion that the settlers had moved to another island called Croatoan, which is now known as Hatteras Island. The expedition sailed back to England, and Roanoke remained abandoned and deserted. Other expeditions tried to reach the colony at the beginning of the 17th century, in the ten years after the last visit, but they were diverted by privateering or by bad weather. Only eighteen years later, in 1608, the English heard again about the colonists from the native Poetan tribe. According to their chief, the colonists would have moved and lived peacefully among another group of natives for years until they were eventually massacred. Because a prophecy from Chief Poetan's priests declared that he would be overthrown by people from this area, he would have preemptively ordered the massacre of everyone out of an abundance of caution. But this again was just a claim, and no evidence was ever found to support it. No archaeological remains, no direct testimony, and no noticeable human remains either. The only certainty is that there were more than 100 people living in the colony in 1587, and three years later they were all gone without a trace, leaving behind no evidence of violence, no remains, or any indication of where they might have gone, save the carvings in the tree and post. So what could have happened to this lost colony? The first hypothesis is that the colonists integrated with a local tribe or with various local tribes. They could also have gone to live in another location, close to a native tribe, and progressively been integrated with them. Or the colonists could have separated into various smaller groups, and then assimilated with various native tribes. What gives credibility to this explanation of the disappearance of the lost colony 
is that several testimonies in the following decades, reported sightings of Native Americans with blonde hair, or wearing European clothes, or even the existence of two-story houses with stone walls at an Indian settlement, which, based on the architecture, would have very probably been the work of Europeans. There were also oral traditions among some Native American tribes in the 18th century about their white ancestors. But there is no definitive proof of any of this, and it can be hard to distinguish legend from fact. Another theory is that the Spanish destroyed the colony. This is not completely out of the realm of possibility, because the Spanish knew about the attempt to establish the colony and the intention to use it as a military base against Spain. They also had a history of destroying colonies and all evidence of their existence. They did so at French settlements in South Carolina, such as Fort Charles, and in Florida too, near present-day Jacksonville. But what makes this hypothesis a bit unlikely is that there is no record of the attack in Spanish archives, and the Spanish were apparently still looking for the settlement several years after it had been abandoned. Other theories are more unconventional and are considered to be pseudoscientific or based on forgeries. For example, from 1937 to 1941, a series of inscribed stones, later called the Dare Stones, were discovered that, were they authentic, would have been written by Eleanor Dare, one of the women from the colony. The stones told the story of the colonists' travels and of their untimely death. The stones are considered by most historians to most likely be fake based on linguistic and chemical analysis. But the first stone that was discovered was different from the others and could possibly be genuine. More tangible archaeological evidence has appeared in recent decades. In 1993, a hurricane unearthed relics on Hatteras Island, about 50 miles from the site of the Roanoke colony, at the site of what was the ancient Croatoan capital. Among the items found were an English seal, gun flints, and coins that could be from the 16th century. This doesn't prove that the colonists lived here, but it does prove at least some kind of contact with the Croatoan tribe. So there is no single explanation today that would allow us to close the case. We don't know what happened to the lost colony, even though it now appears likely from the artifacts that the colonists did not die soon after they disembarked. They at least established contact with one or several native tribes, before, at some point over a period of three years, vanishing. None of them ever re-emerged to tell the tale of the lost colony. Our last story tonight will take us north to the icy waters of the Arctic Ocean, north of the northern boundary of Canada's boreal forest, where the trees disappear and the landscape turns to rock and ice. Since the arrival of Christopher Columbus in North America in 1492, in an attempt to travel to India or China via the West, Europeans have searched for a passage to India through the Americas. They found one in the south, Cape Horn, that Magellan used to complete the first circumnavigation of the Earth. Centuries later, one was built in Panama, with the Panama Canal. But for centuries, explorers also searched for one in the north, hoping that another passage existed somewhere between Canada and the North Pole that would connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. From the 15th to the 19th centuries, many expeditions were sent to the St. Lawrence River or along the northern shores of Canada's east coast, to search for this mythical shortcut to the riches of Asia. Many expeditions never returned from this highly hostile environment, where the waters are frozen 
for the best part of the year. The dark of night can last for months. The cold is deadly, and close to no food can be found. But none of these other lost expeditions caused as many fatalities, nor as much public outcry, as Franklin's expedition in 1845. I encourage you to enjoy the sweet comforts of home and the warmth of your bed, because you are lucky enough to have just what these men craved and never felt in the months before they met their icy fate. By the middle of the 19th century, the northern coasts of eastern Canada had already been explored and mapped. Well known, too, were the months of the year when they were frozen in solid ice, but successive expeditions toward the west had failed to reach the one last area that could contain a potential passage to the Pacific Ocean. To explore this final region, two British ships were sent, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. The expedition was under the command of, and named for, Sir John Franklin, an experienced officer and explorer. He also had direct command of one of the ships, the HMS Erebus. Both ships, Erebus and Terror, were at the vanguard of naval construction at the time. They were wooden ships, but reinforced with iron plates, and even though they relied primarily upon wind propulsion, they also had been equipped with steam engines. They offered a degree of comfort to the crew that we would find very rudimentary today, but that was remarkable at the time. The steam engines also created an internal steam heating system. There were libraries with hundreds of books available for the crew, and the ships contained three years' worth of food supplies, a lot of it in cans. In total, the two ships comprised a crew of 144 men, including officers, seamen, cooks, surgeons, engineers, carpenters, and soldiers. The expedition set sail from England in May 1845. It reached Greenland and later made a stop at Disco Bay on the west coast of Greenland before continuing westward. The expedition was seen sailing west in late July 1845. This expedition was expected to be long, and would not necessarily be able to send news home from the icy region of North Canada, as there were no European outposts nor prisons there. For families left behind in Britain, it was clear that no sign of life and no return was to be expected any time soon, especially given the possibility of the ships getting stuck in ice and having to wait for the following summer to continue their journey. So the families and British officials waited to receive word. The days turned into weeks, then months, then years. After two years, no word from Franklin had arrived. His wife and then the newspapers and members of Parliament started to question the Admiralty as to the expedition's fate and urged authorities to please send a search party. After downplaying any worries, the Admiralty finally launched three expeditions to search for Sir John Franklin and his ships, one by land toward the north of Canada, and two by sea, one from the Atlantic side and the other from the Pacific side. But they didn't find anything. Due to the involvement of the press, and public interest in the story. Other ships searched for the expedition in the years that followed. In 1851, six years after the expedition set sail, the first few relics of the expedition were found on a small island. The expedition had apparently established an encampment there during their first winter, eight to nine months after departing. The graves of three members of the expedition were discovered on the island, but back then they were unable to determine the cause of death. In the 1850s, more evidence of the expedition's fate was discovered. 
isolated individuals and small groups of Inuit people told travelers in search of the lost expedition that a group of thirty-five to forty white men had died of starvation on the coast. Their testimonies included reports of cannibalism. In this archipelago north of Canada, the landscape is a desert of rocks in the summer and ice in the winter. Survival is impossible for anyone other than the locals, who know how to hunt and fish in this extreme and hostile environment. Otherwise, there are no plants, and variations in temperature are extreme. In 1854, the crew was officially, finally, declared deceased, even though the cause of their deaths and the location of their bodies remained unknown. In 1859, two messages left by officers from the expedition were discovered in a cairn on King William Island. A cairn is a pile of stones that can be used to signal something or to leave a message, as in this case. The first message was dated from 1847 and said that the two ships had wintered near King William Island for their second winter and that all was going well. But... Sadly, a second message was written later in the margins of the same sheet of paper, and it was much more worrisome. It said that the Erebus and Terror had stayed trapped in the ice for a year and a half, and that the crew had abandoned their ships in April 1848, a full three years after their departure. It indicated that, at this point, twenty-four men had already died, and the remaining one hundred and five had headed south by land, intending to return to civilization on foot. More discoveries were made in the 1860s on the same island. Various skeletal remains, a lifeboat, and multiple relics from the expedition, including books, clothing, boots, and handkerchiefs, were found. The last major expedition of the 19th century in search of the remains of the Franklin expedition, took place in 1878. At this point, it was established that the entire crew had died attempting to go south, carrying their equipment and food, and using their lifeboats as sledges. The southernmost relics were found hundreds of miles south of where the ships had been abandoned, but still several hundred miles away from the nearest western outpost. It would be almost a century before another major expedition was launched to find a passage between the Atlantic and Pacific. New expeditions found additional human remains, which were then analyzed. The bones revealed a likely and expected vitamin C deficiency, which is the cause of scurvy, and was normal for a crew that had no access to vitamin C for several years. Additionally, a high level of lead was found in the bones, ten times the normal amount, indicating probable lead poisoning. At least one likely cause of the lead poisoning was identified. The thousands of tins of food that the expedition brought along, which had been hastily produced and soldered shut with lead. The food inside the cans would have come into contact with the lead, which is an extremely toxic substance to humans. It is impossible for us to know how much lead poisoning contributed to the loss of the expedition, but it is likely, at least, that the health of the entire crew would have been severely compromised due to their prolonged exposure to lead. Plus, they may have been exposed to an additional source of lead poisoning, as the ships had desalination systems that produced water meant to be drinkable, and the fresh water it generated probably had a very high lead content. But what happened to their ships, to the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror? Their location remained unknown for more than 150 years, until the wreck of Erebus was finally discovered in 2014. It was found covered in just 36 feet of water, so not very deep, but the wreck had deteriorated significantly due to storms and the movement of the ice that affected the structure.
given its shallow depth. The wreck of terror was also discovered in 2016, located 80 feet beneath the surface. Ironically, the loss of the Franklin expedition probably contributed more to geographical knowledge of the North than its return ever would have. The various search parties that explored the islands in the 1850s and 60s allowed for more mapping of the region. And what about that much-sought-after Northwest Passage to the Pacific? It did not exist back then, and even if it did, the conditions were so extreme that no merchant ship could have used it. But here, again, there is irony. Such a passage did not exist in the past, but now, increasingly, one does. The ice of the Arctic Ocean tends to recede with rising temperatures, and the Northwest Passage, north of Alaska and Canada, between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, seems to have a promising commercial future in the coming decades, thanks to a warming climate. This passage, along with its equivalent north of Siberia, could become the preferred route for ships connecting East Asia, mainly China, with Europe. This would mean that the Suez and Panama canals would become less relevant. Well, that's all the stories I have to share with you tonight. As usual, I hope you found these tales interesting and informative, and that you learned something new, as did I. Before you drift into sleep, I want to wish you a night full of dreams, not of icy terror or false accusations, but of the promise of waking to another day in this fascinating and mysterious world. I hope we meet again soon for a new adventure. Sleep well, dear friends. <laughs>